are really excited about what the book of Romans is going to teach us and what it's going to show us. And um, I want to start off by encouraging you to take this journey with us, uh, especially if you're a part of our church and especially if you follow these messages regularly. Um, we want to uh, encourage you to really get stuck in and to open up your Bibles and to get your notebooks ready and to trust God to really speak to you through everything that the book of Romans declares. Uh, my family and I just returned from a trip to Cape Town. Um, we were privileged enough to spend a week or two down there with some friends. And uh, as we were coming home, uh, for those of you that know my family, you'll know that we have uh, three small boys. And going anywhere is a challenge. Traveling to any form of destination, I mean, just going to the corner store to buy some milk and bread can be a challenge when you have to take the whole family along. Uh, never mind having to get all of those kids onto an airplane and through an airport and through security and all of the various stages of making your way onto and off of an airplane. Um, but as we were coming home, we literally had five big luggage bags with us. We had a laptop bag. I had a suit bag. Uh, we had two baby bags. Uh, we had a pack of biltong and a bunch of other stuff that we had bought that we were carrying along with us. And uh, along with that, also having three boys that discovered that there are many things both inside and outside of an airport terminal uh, that can be climbed. And so the thing is, is that we had all of this baggage with us, which really meant that we were so limited in the direction that we could actually go. I mean, you're pretty much just moving in straight lines. When you've got uh, that many kids and that many bags and you're constrained in the way that we were in that moment, uh, you really just want to get off of the airplane, get to the baggage claim, uh, you know, get everything onto a trolley, try and gather all of your children and your offspring and make sure that they're still with you and then move to the exit and get into the vehicle or to the, the, the transport as soon as you can. And that's kind of what we were doing um, because stopping for anything, whether it's a toilet break or to get something to drink or to pick something up that had dropped to the floor, just involves too much effort. And for example, I, I think if I was walking along and there was a hundred rand note lying on the ground um, as I was moving along, I probably just would have said it's too much effort to pick up that hundred rand note, as valuable as it might be, because I'm moving in the direction and I don't actually have the capacity to stop and pick something up um, in addition to what I'm already carrying. And... Um, yeah, I think that just like any kind of other kind of baggage, uh, like the very literal form of baggage and luggage that we carry around every day, uh, we also tend to carry around with us a lot of emotional baggage and a lot of theological baggage with us wherever we go. Uh, people might not realize this. Some people say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't necessarily have a theology. But the truth is, is that everybody has a theology because theology are your thoughts about God. And so even if your thought about God is that there is no God, you still have theology. You still have a belief or a reasoning about God, uh, which makes up something that you carry with you. You live your life from that perspective and from that worldview and, and from that, um, you know, th th that platform. And so we all have theological baggage. And our theological baggage is often connected to our emotional baggage. And so we become so set in what we're already carrying, just like me walking through the airport with all of those bags hanging off of my arms and trying to push the trolley and trying to look out for my kids, um, that I really cannot at any point take anything new on board. 
And for some of us, we become so used to our carrying our theological baggage around and our emotional baggage around, stuff that we've probably carried around from a very young age. Um, we've become so used to this that we're simply just plodding along with all of these bags and bags of ideas about who God is and who He isn't. And for a lot of us, that baggage, if we were to unzip the bags and look at what's inside, uh, we'd find that it actually involves a lot of feelings of unworthiness, uh, feelings of condemnation, um, feelings of not being good enough to please God, feelings of, of kind of the weight of a moral sense of, of, of justice or, or what we're supposed to do that we're not doing. And, 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 and all of these kinds of feelings normally accompany people's theological baggage that they carry around. And the truth is, is that some of us are carrying so much of that that we're no longer available to hearing the truth. We're no longer available to hearing the gospel and the good news, which is described through the scriptures. So we almost dismiss it out of hand. We're carrying so much theological baggage that as soon as the gospel is proclaimed, we're not even available to hear it anymore, and we just dismiss it out of hand. And, um, and that is because picking it up means at the same time laying something else down. You've got to be willing to lay down some of your preconceived ideas about God and about, about the Scriptures and about the Gospel in order to pick up something that is more valuable than what you're carrying. And I really believe that nobody does this on purpose. I don't think anybody carries baggage for fun. I mean, if we could, we would all have somebody else do it for us. Um, but we carry baggage because deep down, we don't know how to live without it. In fact, deep down, it, it has informed our identity to the point where we literally don't know who we would be without it. Like, who would I be if I, if I don't carry around these deep-seated emotions and feelings and thoughts that I've had for so many years? And it really comes down to not yet having put our trust in anything greater than ourselves. Uh, we haven't had the courage yet. We haven't found something valuable enough yet to cause us to lay down all of our preconceived ideas and to just simply follow Jesus and, and follow him on the basis of the truth of who he is. So when God steps into our lives and, and when the gospel gets proclaimed and when Jesus begins to really reveal himself to us, what he calls us to is the kind of trust that, that causes us to leave everything else behind. God wants us to be free of these preconceived ideas. In Luke 9 verse 3, it actually says, Jesus said to his disciples, he called them to him and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Like, don't even take a change of clothing with you. I'm sending you out to go and proclaim the gospel. But as you proclaim it, you've got to believe it in your own heart. So you can't proclaim that God loves and cares for people while at the same time not being sure if God is going to love and care for you. And so he says, don't take anything with you. Just trust in me. In other words, don't travel the same way that I travel with my three kids whenever I go anywhere with all these bags and all of these things that I've added on in order to see me through the journey. And so what I want to encourage you to do is just to put your theological baggage down and to leave it behind for this journey as over the next couple of weeks and months we work through the book of Romans. Um, just start with this openness to simply allow God to speak to you. And if you feel like that's something that you cannot do at this point, where you still kind of, you need to find something more valuable before you can lay that down, uh, that's also okay. Because I believe that on this journey, 
we're going to discover something in the gospel that is so valuable um, that you won't just lay down your bags. You'll literally throw them down on the ground. You would uh, abandon everything else that you've known about God before in order to lay a hold of this. And that's really what Jesus speaks about in Matthew 13. Uh, verses 44 to 46, he talks about what it's like when somebody discovers the gospel, discovers what the kingdom of God is really all about. Um, he says this in, in Matthew 13, 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The point is, is that this changes everything. Discovering the gospel, picking up the good news of what Jesus has already done for you on the cross, understanding the true meaning of your righteousness or your right standing with God. It changes everything about your faith. It changes everything about your identity, the way you see yourself, your life, your, your walk with God. And there's no greater exposition or explanation of the gospel than that which we find in the book of Romans. And this is why I, what I'm really looking forward to is not just how the book of Romans is written, how powerfully and articulately it's been laid out, but it's about how it reveals Jesus to us and talks to us about the grace of God. The book of Romans is not actually a book. Um, it is a letter, and uh, a letter that was written by the apostle Paul. And he wrote this letter to believers um, that were in Rome and this church that existed in Rome. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he hadn't started and had never visited himself. And so he writes to them to make them aware that he's planning to come and visit them. And also to clarify the doctrine and the theology and the gospel that the scriptures tell us he received directly from God as he writes it out under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he sets about laying out the gospel with more clarity and detail than in any of his other letters. And it's almost like Paul has so much to say. There's so much truth that's almost stumbling out of his mouth. Like it, it just one truth just spills out over another that it actually makes the book of Romans a really dense book. It's dense with truth. And um, it can make it a little bit harder for us to work through it as we read it to make sure that we see and continue to understand the bigger picture. And I know that many people in reading the book of Romans have felt overwhelmed at times with just the amount of, of content and density that it contains. Um, but what I love about it is the reason why it's written like that is because of Paul's story. Paul wasn't always Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And when he was Saul, he hated the church. The church in those days was known as the way. And he persecuted members of the way. He was infamous. People feared Paul uh, for the way that he persecuted Christians. He stood by approving as Stephen was stoned to death. And he got letters from Jerusalem. And the Bible says that at one point he was marching off ready to, to uh, pull families apart and throw Christians and commit them to prison. And, and uh, he was marching through to a city called Damascus. And as he was walking, he was breathing murderous threats um, and murmuring these murderous uh, threats beneath his breath. And, and just a person who was obviously very passionate about the fact that what Christians preach around the grace of God and the finished work of the cross was false. That was, that was Paul's belief. And so he's marching to put an end to this 
what he believed was a false belief only to see a flash of light fall down to a ground and hear a voice speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks the question, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you, whom you are persecuting. And uh, Saul then gets led by the hand um, to the city of Damascus. And, and in that place, God calls a man by the name of Ananias to go and lay his hands and pray on him. And, and, and at first, Ananias doesn't want anything to do with this. He knows who Paul is, and he doesn't want to go and speak to him or have anything to do with him. And, and God says, I want you to go and do this because I have a plan and a purpose with Saul's life. I want him to be the voice that will take the gospel of my grace to the Gentile nations. And so God tells Ananias, go and lay your hands on Saul. And he goes and he prays for Saul. And the Bible says that as he puts his hands on Saul, something like scales fell from his eyes and instantly he was able to see. What I love about that whole story is that the name Ananias actually means grace. So the moment the grace of God hit Saul's life, the scales of the law fell off of his eyes and he was able to see with clarity what the heart of God really is. He was able to lay down his theological baggage that he had been carrying around all of his life in order to lay a hold of something even greater. And from that moment onwards, Saul was committed to preaching the good news of God's grace. He says that in Acts 20, 24, he says that my greatest uh, determination in life, uh, all that I want to do is to finish the race and to finish the call that God has given me, the ministry that God has given me to testify to the gospel of his grace. And so Paul begins to preach this. But before he does that, he spends three years in Tarsus. He didn't immediately confer with man. He didn't immediately go back to the other believers uh, in Jerusalem. But he hears from Jesus himself regarding the gospel. And this is the gospel truth that he begins to preach. And in the book of Romans, he lays out very systematically and very clearly and precisely what the gospel actually is. And that's what makes this one of the most important books um, in all of Scripture and in all of history. For the first 300 years of Christianity, the book of Romans was circulated as the key scriptural document, the one from which the early believers and the early Christians were able to draw their doctrine and their, and their, and their scriptural beliefs from. From this document, the book of Romans, millions of millions of people uh, and New Testament believers have been awakened to the earth-shattering, identity-defining, life-changing truth of God's grace. And the good news is, is that we get to experience this today. As you're listening to this, as we work through the book of Romans in the upcoming weeks, you'll be able to experience the same thing. The book of Romans has been described as the greatest letter ever written. It's been spoken about as the mountain peak of scripture, unparalleled in its expression of the gospel, the most important Christian document in history. Famously, St. Augustine was converted simply by hearing a passage from the book of Romans. Luther's revelation of the gospel as it's expressed in the book of Romans led to the 16th century reformation. John Wesley was converted simply by hearing a preface to the letter of Romans in which he said he found his heart strangely warmed. Wayne Grudem, uh, who was one of the editors who worked on the ESV Bible, said that throughout the history of the church, expositions of Romans have sparked many revivals as people have become aware of the magnificence of God and His grace towards us. And this is what makes Romans so powerful. Not that it's a well-written letter or that it contains a lot of theolo uh, theological density, but because it plainly states the gospel, the good news about God's grace, the basis of our faith, and the way that we as imperfect, flawed, sinful people are able 
to be right with God, to have a relationship with God, to walk with God, to know Him, to be loved by Him, to be free from condemnation, to be free from guilt and shame, and to simply enjoy life as we, as we live it out in the presence of God. You know, when you get it, you can never go back to the way that you were before. If you've ever had that in, in any kind of a situation, sometimes you'll be speaking to somebody trying to explain something and, and you'll realize that they just don't get it yet. They just don't understand. The penny hasn't dropped. And when you haven't gotten the gospel, it's very hard uh, to, to understand it until that moment comes where the penny drops, the light goes on, and you get it. And once you've seen the gospel, you can never unsee the gospel. It changes everything about how you view God. It changes everything about how you serve Him, love Him, and walk with Him. Martin Luther struggled with this himself. In fact, Martin Luther uh, developed intestinal problems from, from uh, uh, fasting so much in order to try and please God. And he just felt that no matter what he did, he was never good enough for God. And so he spoke about how he tried to understand Paul's word in the book of Romans. And he, I'm going to read a quote here. He says, I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's word. The expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, uh, Martin Luther was a German monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against Him. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through. And as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my most dearest and comforting word. And that's really what happens. The, everything that we think we know about God, all of that theological baggage drops to the ground when we begin to understand that we are made righteous, not on the basis of our own loveliness or our own goodness or our own morality, but simply on the basis of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And so it changes everything. And it changed everything for Martin Luther. It didn't just uh, change everything to Martin Luther, but also for Augustine and for, for Calvin and for Wesley and for countless other Christians. And, and not only for them, but it also happened to me. And I would say that from my perspective, it really happened to me by accident, or at least what seemed to be an accident. Uh, because Romans, the book of Romans, plays a key role in my personal journey, in my personal walk with God, and in the message that I preach today. It's how God revealed the gospel to me through the Holy Spirit. I was raised in a Christian home, um, in a home in which my grandfather was a pastor. Many of my uncles are pastors. My cousins are pastors. I was uh, taught the scriptures from a young age. I read the scriptures from a young age, and, and I found a lot of comfort in them. Um, I knew most of the Bible stories, and I had learned a lot about what those stories meant for my life. And so um, I'm very grateful for that, and I'm very grateful for the input that I had from a young age to understand the Bible. At the age of 16, uh, for whatever reason, probably because of a little bit of a, just an acceleration of the calling of God on my life at that time, I just felt I wanted to read the Bible. Although it was a very kind of dorky thing to do at the time, I would take out my Bible, my big study Bible um, at school, at break, and just take colored pencils. I made it even worse with the colored pencils, and I would just start reading the Bible. And for some reason in that year, I read the Bible through three times at the age of 16. And uh, I learned a lot about the scriptures 
um, from that. And, 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 and I started teaching some of my friends, and we had a, a small group, a connect group, and I would uh, have this on Wednesday nights, and I would teach my, my classmates at school, and eventually started writing some courses and inviting kids from assembly to come up and, uh, and to, to come and join us for these courses. And I, and I, and I took uh, many of the kids in our school uh, through the, those courses, courses on Jesus and on the Holy Spirit and understanding the Bible and all the rest. After school, I went and studied theology, and I got a degree in theology, and I became a youth pastor at the age of 21, continued to teach the scriptures week in and week out. And 12 years later, I can tell you that it honestly still remains one of my greatest passions in life. The thing is, though, the thing is, though, and this is where it gets real, and this may be what some of you may have experienced, is that I began to buckle under the weight of all the things I believed that the Bible was calling me to do. When I, I read um, everything that the Bible, the kind of person that the Bible calls us to be as believers, when I read about uh, uh, righteousness and when I read about kindness and when I read about self-control and Christ-likeness and I looked at my own life, I realized that there were major gaps. There were major flaws that I had and imperfections that I had, which I honestly didn't feel that I could be open about. And so I had to pretend, especially being in ministry and being a youth pastor and leading other young people, I had to pretend like I had those things mastered, or at the very least, that I was well on my way to mastering them. There was this false perception that I had to kind of portray um, in order to feel like I had any kind of right to speak or teach about the Scriptures. And the weight of trying to maintain this man of God image, honestly, it killed me. The law killed me. It slaughtered me. It left me bleeding on the floor uh, and like, like the man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho in the story of the Good Samaritan, I was beaten up, I was stripped of my dignity, and I had nothing left because I, I, I just couldn't carry the weight of it anymore. In 2009, my wife and I uh, lost a baby in, in January 2009, and in June, we lost a set of twins and also our, our ability to have kids. And uh, later that year, we tried an IVF procedure, and that failed. And, you know, we, we had no children, um, you know, no money left to try and have children. And we just couldn't understand it because our theology that we had built up through all of these years, reading the Scriptures and taking them to point at ourselves, we looked at that and said, well, you know, if bad things are happening in our lives, it's because we haven't done what we're supposed to be doing. And so with that just came condemnation upon condemnation heaped onto our lives. We just felt completely condemned by God and guilty. And we felt like this wouldn't have happened if we had prayed more. This wouldn't have happened if we had uh, done better in, in, in praying together or reading the Bible or leading people in church. Surely there must be some sense of selfishness or sinfulness or pridefulness that has led to this calamity in our lives. And my entire theology started crumbling around me. The bottom line is, is that we burnt out. We burnt out on trying to be good enough for God. I don't know if you've ever felt that the task of being good enough in order to please God was too much for you to bear. That's what we felt. In self-righteous pride, however, I wasn't willing to admit that I was burnt out. And so I was determined to make myself better. 
I was determined to fix myself and to get over my burnout and to be even more determined and more committed and, and, and more diligent and, and, and pious in everything that I did, even though all of it had lost its joy for me. And that's really how you know when you're getting close to burnout is when you can still do the same things, but you've just lost the joy. There's no more joy or there's no more sense of genuine fulfillment in what you're doing or satisfaction in what you're doing. And, and at that time, I remember um, in the beginning of 2010, um, I got sick. And I remained sick for the next eight months of 2010. I went to countless doctors, um, many different specialists. I went for chest x-rays. One doctor even drew eight vials of blood from me so that he could test every single marker and see if my immune system was okay. And, um, and after having done all of that, I remember sitting at his desk. And he took a pack of sleeping tablets and slid it across the floor, uh, across the desk. And he said, there's nothing wrong with you. What you need is to sleep. There's nothing physically wrong with you. There are no infections. Your immune system is perfect. Uh, you are in perfect health, but you are burnt out, and you should sleep. And at that time, I just remember wondering, what would lie ahead for me? Like, what, where do you go from here? Like, how does ministry become better? How does my walk with God become better if, if I've been doing it now for all of these years, and this is where it's led me to? I felt like I was doomed to a life of dreariness and fatigue. And in spite of all of this, I was still anti-grace. So this is the part where I make a real confession here. But I was an anti-grace preacher. And I was anti-grace other preachers. So preachers that were preaching about the grace of God. My personal assessment is that they just want a quick fix theology where they can live and, 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 and breathe wishful thinking and adapted truths that make them feel like they can sidestep their responsibility. I believe that people who preached grace were slackers uncommitted, unwilling to die to themselves. In short, I thought that they were deceived, and I said so publicly. And whenever somebody told me about grace or about somebody who preaches grace, I would say, yes, but. Yes, but you just have to make allowance for this. I feared grace. In that burnt-out state, uh, halfway through 2010, the church that I was at asked me, to teach the book of Romans to second year Bible college students and to teach it verse by verse and to write the study guide for it. And so I began to write this course over those next few weeks. I still remember the Saturday night before I was going to teach the course, uh, I wanted to transfer the document. I had gotten up to Romans 11, just had a few chapters left to go, and I wanted to transfer the document from my laptop to my home computer. And as I transferred it, the document corrupted somehow, and I lost everything I'd, I had worked on. And um, I don't know if you've ever had that where you, where you forgot to save a project. These days, autosave has saved many lives. But, uh, but back then, there wasn't autosave. It wasn't just a set feature. And so um, I lost all of that work. It was about 10,000 words or more that I had lost um, in writing. And, and I don't know what to do. I don't know whether I wanted to cry, whether I wanted to run away, whether I wanted to give up. I actually remember just going then to the bed, lying on the bed for like 30 minutes in the fetal position, just kind of, you know, not sure what to do, just stunned. And then I got up and I said, well, I don't have any option. I have to start again. And so I didn't write the study guide for the book of Romans once. God had me write it twice. And I'm already so burnt out. I'm already so emotionally finished. And so I write the study guide twice. I don't sleep for those next two nights. I hand it in on the Wednesday morning. And that Wednesday evening, I started teaching uh, three sessions a night. And as I'm starting to teach it, I'm more tired and more disillusioned in my faith than I had ever been. And as I start teaching the book of Romans, I get arrested by something. 
Like, I didn't know what it was at first, but looking back, it's probably one of the most pivotal moments in my walk with God. It was a watershed moment that poured me out to faith in Christ. And I remember that while I was, uh, while I was teaching, I read this verse in, in Romans 3 and verse 8. And this is the verse, and this was actually an accusation that was made against Paul and his preaching and his message. And this, I realized, was the same accusation that I had made against those who preach grace. Because people said this of Paul, Romans 3, 8 says, And why not do evil so that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Why not do evil that good may come? This is what Paul was charged with. This is what people said. Oh, you know what? Paul's just a grace preacher. Paul just preaches that, that you don't have to follow the laws and you don't have to follow the principles. What you need is you need to put your faith in Jesus and then you're made righteous by grace alone. So he, just, he wants to sidestep hard work and commitment and diligence and he just tells people, you know what, just keep doing evil so that good may come. And Paul says their condemnation is just. This is not what I'm saying. And he goes on to explain what the message of God's grace really is. In fact, I don't find anywhere in Scripture, and I've heard very few preachers actually say that grace means you can do what you want. Normally, it's people who don't understand grace who say that grace preachers say that when that's not actually what they're saying at all. And what gave me just a moment of, of, of hesitation as I read that was, all of a sudden, the only thing that I, that I heard as I read that out was, that's what you do. And I thought to myself, is that what I do? Am I like the people who spoke out against Paul? Because I've said that about people who preach grace. And so it just hit me. Just for a split second, this thought came to me. I'm guilty of that. And so I couldn't shake it. I, I, I carried on, obviously, in that moment. I just carried on preaching um, you know, the, the following verses and, and chapters in the book of Romans. But I, for weeks and months later, I kept thinking to myself, what if I approach this whole thing, all of these years, I've been coming at this from the wrong direction. What if I've got this whole thing back to, to front? And, and, and what if I've misunderstood the core message of the Bible? And that was a frightful moment for me because I had been reading the Bible and preaching the Bible for so many years. I was carrying so many bags with me. All of a sudden, I was faced with this thought that I may have to put all these bags down in order to reassess what I believed about how I am right with God and how I'm made right and how I stay right with God. All of a sudden, I thought to myself, what if it's not my good works that lead to my redemption or that assure my redemption? But what if it's my, my redemption in Christ that's by the grace of God that I'm only able to do good works? And what if all the while when I thought I was becoming a better Christian, all those years when I thought I was becoming a, a, a more and more committed individual, I was actually becoming a more and more self-righteous monster. This is the thought that hit me, hit me square between the eyes. I remember being in a science class in high school, and I can't rem remember the name of the specific metal, but there's a certain metal when it comes into contact with oxygen, it combusts. And so we were taking out little pieces of this metal and watching it kind of combust in, in small measures. And then like high school guys normally would, fortunately we had safety goggles on, but as high school guys would, I took out a bigger piece of this combustible metal and it exploded in our faces. And thank God nobody lost any eyes or any, you know, any limbs um, in that moment. But this is what happened to me as I read the book of Romans. As I saw 
a clear explanation of what the grace of God really is. It's like the gospel exploded in my face. And that's what Romans did for me. It wasn't, and this is important to know, it wasn't just a once-off moment, but it was actually a journey. It's something that took me um, a few months, actually, for the penny to really drop. As the first thing that happened, that, that first reading of Romans, and reading Romans 3.8, it was really just a crack in the door that opened up the opportunity for God's Holy Spirit to speak to me in a deeper way. Um, it was really just the first arrow that pierced my armor and, uh, and, and opened up an opportunity for God's love to flood my life. It wasn't the entire story. There was still a process and um, something that I had to go through over those next couple of weeks. But I just remember rereading the entire Bible to see what the grace of God really is and what the gospel uh, uh, proclamation is actually all about. And the more I read it and the more I went through it, uh, the more I began to realize that it's all about Jesus. In the beginning of 2011, I preached a series on the heart of God by looking at Jesus in, in the Gospels. And, and in that moment, I realized it's all about Jesus. We preach Jesus, no more, no less. Our distinct purpose is to know Him and to know Him more intimately, to be more intimately acquainted with the wonders of His person. All of a sudden, I realized that it's not about how good I am. It's not about how much I've done for God. It's not about how, much, how many self-righteous deeds I've racked up or how many points I've scored with God. It's really all about what Jesus had already done for me on the cross and me simply believing it and then walking in my new identity as the righteousness of God. There was such a freedom. I felt like I can understand what Luther is saying. When he says that, that, that all of a sudden there was a liberation, and, 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 and as some people have described, it feels like you've been born again, again. All of a sudden, all the joy flooded back, and all the, all the hope flooded back, and, and the, the passion flooded back. And so as passionately as, as Paul persecuted the church, he turned around to build the church. And in the same way, as passionately I was an anti-grace preacher, I became a passionate preacher of the gospel of God's grace as it's laid out in scripture because I it changed my life it changed my life it made me more committed and more in love with Jesus than I have ever been and that's really what the gospel is all about that's really the effect that it has in your life and that's why the grace of God is the only thing that will make us truly righteous and empower us to live a truly righteous life and so what Romans is trying to say to us is, is not how we should be better. This is not advice. The gospel is not advice. It's news. News is of what has already been done. And what God wants us to know through the book of Romans is who he is and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We'll get into this um, from next week onwards. But again, what I'm going to encourage you to do as we go into our study on the book of Romans is to make sure that you give God the opportunity now to speak to you to lay down your theological baggage and just say, okay, God, teach me. Okay, Holy Spirit, speak to me. And allow the scriptures and allow the gospel to penetrate your heart. And I believe that when that happens, you will be forever changed. And, um, and that's what the gospel does. It changes everything.